Welcome to Mormonland. I'm Dave Noyce, Tribune Managing Editor, joined by our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hi, Peggy. Hi. Today we're going to dive into some deeper aspects of Mormonism. We have with us from Virginia scholars Viona and Terrell Givens. Both have extensive academic resumes, and they have a new book out called The Christ Who Heals, How God Restored the Truth That Saved Us. Congratulations on the book, you two, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you. Great. <laughs> Great to have you here. Well, this is your third book, I, I believe, coming out from Deseret Book. I, I don't know if it's seen as kind of a continuation or not. Your, your first one was The God Who Weeps, and then another one, The Crucible of Doubt. Fiona, starting with you with a more general question, what's the aim of this book as compared to, say, th those others? Well, The Crucible of Doubt really focused on um, aspects of our faith uh, that are challenging and possible ways of, of looking at our faith uh, in another way in order to help us you know, survive the challenges. So it's slightly different. So sort of a continuation so, of that um, book? Right, yeah, no, the, the God Who Weeps is definitely a genesis of, of this book. We recognize that as the personality of God had been drastically altered, so had that of the Son, and also the relationship between the Father and the Son. So over time, um, God the Father uh, became not just more elusive and inaccessible, but angry and vengeful which turned the role of Christ as mediator to one of a shield, protecting us against the Father's wrath rather than as a collaboration between the Father and the Son to bring to pass um, our immortal life and eternal glory. Sofiana, is that what this book is about? You would say it's an extension of the discussion of the nature of God and Christ? Yes. Yes, I would, I would say it was that. What we're focusing on, I think, is the difference um, in Mormon theology, uh, well, the beginnings, the genesis of Mormon theology and the genesis of Christian theology. Tr uh, traditional Christian theology starts in the garden, um, where man is absolutely wonderful and then uh, creates, a, well, actually um, uh, commits a heinous crime. Um, for which he is ejected from the garden and mortality is the punishment. Whereas Mormon theology starts in pre-existent councils where um, we are either intelligences or spirits. Joseph Smith used the two terms interchangeably, but there is a council in which we are involved, in which we participate, and the, um, the council of gods invites us into a more abundant life. Uh, to which we accede. In fact, we um, there's that lovely reference in the Old Testament of the Mormon stars um, shouting for joy, that idea of, yes, we want the more abundant life. And so for Mormons then, um, there is no tragedy in the Garden of Eden. What happens there is not unexpected. Um, it does not surprise. Um, it is absolutely essential that we ascend to mortality. So for Mormon theology, mortality is seen as an ascent towards godhood rather than a fall, and mortality is a crucial educational period um, for us to gain those attributes that will help us to become more godlike. You, you sort of alluded to a little in your uh, answer there about early Christian teachings. Uh, Terrell, I was wondering if you could tell us um, 
You know, Mormons sort of honor the great reformers as paving the way for uh, what Mormons see as a restoration of Christ's pure gospel. But you note in the book that these reformers also strayed from some early Christian teachings that ha had more <laughs> closely resembled LDS doctrines. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think that this is one of the most pervasive myths in Mormon culture today. And I think it really gets us on the wrong track. There's virtually no single way in which Reformation theology or thought moved closer to what would be Restoration teachings. In almost every single way, Calvin and Luther and Singley and their cohorts uh, effectively solidified and completed what Latter-day Saints refer to as the apostasy. I mean, they did away with the notion of, of sacraments as essential. They did away with a priesthood. They did away with any connection between the living and the dead. They did away with free will. They introduced uh, utter depravity and predestination. And so part of what we're trying to attempt in this book is to show that if you want to find true parallels to LDS theology, then you need to really step outside of the Western tradition and especially outside of the Protestant reforms and you'll find very recognizable echoes and parallels in Eastern Christian theology, which never diverged quite as fully and completely from the gospel, according to the LDS narrative, Western Christianity did. So this seems like a radical uh, reordering of Mormon theology a little bit. Um, don't you think that some <laughs> of the modern Mormon commenters also kind of go with the reformers it's it, you're trying well, to I take do. it back you know some of the brothers from from pardon you're trying to take it back to joseph smith's or, original visions right yeah yeah i am i think that's and i often refer to what we're doing as, a, as, as an attempt to kind of recuperate more fully what we think Joseph Smith's vision was, we're, we're arguing in this book that LDS thought continues to be informed and, and we would say contaminated to an extraordinary degree by a vocabulary, by a rhetoric, by preconceptions and paradigms that we inherited from the Protestant Reformation. And in part, that's understandable because that's the world in which the Restoration arose. But we, we do a lot in this book with vocabulary, with re-examining, for example, words like save and sin and judgment, and try to show the extent to which our understanding of these words has been uh, tragically shaped by a Protestant understanding that emphasizes sinfulness, depravity, and original sin. Whereas words like save, it comes from the Greek word sozo, which as we point out could just as readily and, as, and often is translated as heal. And so part of what we're trying to do is affect a kind of reorientation of vocabulary that we think is much more consistent with, with LDS teachings and values. For example, if we think of Jesus Christ as the healer of our wounds, rather than as the rescuer of our from hell and depravity, we think that's a much healthier outlook and, and, and much more consistent with Joseph Smith's original vision. Let me focus a little bit on the heavenly parents question, the male and female uh, gods that Mormons teach. Did you find any roots for that in Eastern Christianity, or is that a pretty uniquely Mormon view? No. Well, not really. It's actually um, Hebrew. It's uniquely Hebrew prior to um, the reforms of Josiah, actually. 
um, which is interesting because one sees this coming up um, in the West as late as the 15th century. Um, I have not as yet found anything um, within the earliest Christian sources that refers to um, a, um, a, a godhead that comprises male and female. I mean, there's definitely the same idea of a triune God, God's Father, God's Son, and God's Spirit, but it's really only when we go back into the ancient Hebrew tradition that we're actually going to see a worship of um, El, El Shaddai, and Jehovah. So God, the Father, God, the Mother, or the Mother with breasts, or the, the God with breasts, or the God of the mountains, and then Jehovah. But it's not until Josiah's reforms that the two male gods are collapsed and that the female deity is expunged um, completely from, um, from, uh, from at least um, political um, and ecclesiastical discourse. It, it's definitely pervaded among, among the people. So it's interesting. So when when we have um, Erastus Nose saying that God is male and female, and man and woman, um, it, it, Joseph is actually recuperating something much earlier than um, than early Christianity. Even I mean, it's 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 pre seventh century BC. Wow. Do you hear much talk of it in the church today? I mean, roots like that. Well, I am seeing um, a much more use of the term heavenly parents, um, definitely. Um, recently, in recent conferences, um, there is more, rather than just heavenly father, there um, definitely some of the senior apostles are using the term heavenly parents. Um, Elder Ballard has used it, Elder Holland has used it, um, and I'm trying to think there is also... But anyway, we're seeing the use of heavenly parents much more frequently now than, what, 30, 40, even 10 years ago. Um, so I find that very interesting. Well, Mormon officials uh, introduced an essay, like within the last year, year and a half, where they talk about Mother in Heaven or Heavenly Mother. Um, but it's the shortest yes. essay of all. It's like, you know, four or five paragraphs. Um, right. What 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 to make of that then? I mean, you you have a book where you you, you delve much more deeply, at least into a, a heavenly parental relationship, but not you know not necessarily plowing any new doctrinal ground. Right. No, and it, it, it is very difficult. That's why there are only three or four paragraphs on it because there has not really been a, a theology of heavenly mother articulated in in Mormonism um, from Elder Ballard's comment. Um, it is it, he, he is seeing it at any rate as this is a, a collaborative affair of, of heavenly um, mother and heavenly father or the male and the female deity as being fully equal to each other and fully collaborative. And um, I, I think that's one of the first things that Joseph did, in fact, is by sundering the Trinity and um, releasing three disparate members of the Godhead that have their own divine attributes, which I think we see most beautifully articulated actually in Mosiah 18 in the baptismal covenant. So in that baptismal covenant, which um, they're, we're fairly certain that the early saints actually articulated it aloud, um, this idea of 
carrying each other's burdens, of mourning with those who mourn, comforting those who stand in need of um, comfort. And then we enter Christ's family. Well, Christ's family includes both God the Father and um, and the other deities. So, so what we have then is all three of them in that covenant. So, for example, God the Father is the God who weeps. So that's the mourning. Um, mourning and then um, the God who carries the burdens into Gethsemane and then onto the cross is Christ. And then the God who comforts is um, God the Holy Spirit. So you have with Joseph what he um, recuperates, we think, from a really, really ancient tradition that precedes um, Christianity even is this idea of a reciprocal collaborative Godhead and so when Mormons use that phrase you know this is my work and my glory it can very well be turned into this is our work and our glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man so the idea of theosis I think is very very strong in the early Christian tradition but we have to understand that it's still attenuated it's adumbrated it's like insofar as we are created we can become as much as much like God as possible but we can't actually become joint heirs with Christ Mormon theology takes that literally that we can become joint heirs with Christ. I think it's because we don't believe in creation. We believe that we are intelligences, that we are coexistent with God, not co-equal with God, but coexistent with the possibility of becoming um, God-like in, in a very real and literal sense. And I think that is one of the most expand. Um, we, we have not seen this art articulated, this idea of theosis articulated in such an expansive and universal manner as it was with Joseph. So, Terrell, uh, in the book, you, po you pose the question, do Latter-day Saints worship the same Christ as other Christians? You proceed in the book to give an answer. How would you answer that here for our listeners today? Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fraught question, <clears throat> but I think we're going against the grain and saying, well, no, clearly we don't. And if, in fact, Latter-day Saints worship the same Christ found in the Christian world, then it seems to us that the whole restoration would have been unnecessary if the essential core of the gospel message was already intact and correctly being promulgated. And so we certainly do worship Jesus the Christ, the Savior, the Healer, the, uh, the Son of God. But we believe, and we're trying to demonstrate in this book, all the ways in which Joseph Smith radically reconceptualizes Christ's role from the very beginning, that grace erupts in the universe not in Gethsemane, but rather in premortal councils, that he is not our shield and defender against God, but collaborator with God, that he did not create us for his own glory, but for our immortality and eternal life, and that he is an ever-patient tutor who will ensure that the plan of salvation will be efficacious in the lives of, of every single man, woman, and child, and that no door will ever be shut on our eternal progress. It's, a, it's conceptually a very different Jesus Christ, we believe. So what do you think Mormons get wrong about the Christ they worship, some Mormons? Well, we think that in large part, to the extent that we so uh, continually and pervasively participate in that language of, of, of sin and salvation, 
that we still think of him as our rescuer from a condition of fallenness and depravity, rather than as our enabler and tutor along a pathway toward godliness, that we too often think of him as an intermediary and a shield against a sovereign God's wrath and justice, rather than seeing them as Fiona so lovely, uh, so, so beautifully conceptualized as a collaborative Godhead who are all participating in the project of human salvation. And so we think ultimately that, that the, the restoration offers us a much more optimistic and positive and hopeful portrayal of Christ than we have fully appreciated. So uh, tell us again, how do you define atonement then? Well, the Book of Mormon talks of atonement in terms of agency, that there is, you know, we, we unlike most Christian and, and mythic traditions, we, Mormonism doesn't begin with a cosmological struggle between good and evil, but between the choices of agency and non-agency. And so we believe that agency requires that there be a consequence for every choice. Our, con our choices have to be choices of something. And God guarantees us from the primordial councils that we will have an agency that is intact and preserved and, and honored and recognized. Uh, as C.S. Lewis once said, hell is in some ways the greatest testament to, to human freedom and human agency. So what that means is that every choice doesn't have a punishment, but every choice has a consequence. And Christ recognizing the inevitable injuries that we would do to ourselves and to each other, the fragmenting and splintering of relationships and wholeness that would be incident to our mortal sojourn, offered to stand in our stead in taking upon himself the full weight of those consequences of injury, of pain, of suffering, and of harm. So we certainly have a conception of the atonement that makes it absolutely central to the gospel plan, but that sees atonement as reconciling ourselves to God, of, of, of healing us from our wounded nature, rather than standing before God to accept his wrathful punishment in consequence of Adam's or our sins. We think it's a, a much lovelier um, and more beneficent version of atonement that, uh, that is traceable to the Book of Mormon. So it sounds like... Just to add to what... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Just to add what Terrell was saying, there is this absolutely fabulous scripture in the 1830 edition of Book of Mormon in um, First Nephi 13, verse 32. And um, it's, it's essentially talking about the blindness that occurs because of the plain and precious things that have been taken away from the gospel, which is why the Gentiles are wandering around in a state of blindness. Um, and that was in the later edition. But in the 1830 edition, blindness was rendered as woundedness. So because of the plain and precious things that have been removed from the gospel, um, the, the, the Gentiles we're, we're, are actually in a state of woundedness. That's a 21st century word. So we feel, both Terrell and I, that the, um, the Restoration Scriptures are rather, um, they're like transitional texts. So you have exposés of... Um, of, of a God the Father um, who who mourns with us and um, who weeps with us. And you can find scattered um, images and references to that in the Old Testament. Quite frankly, you've got to dig around for them. 
But both Jacob 5, Jacob 5 is 77 verses long, and it essentially repeats the same three things. God's concern, he comes down to nourish the vineyard with his servant in order to preserve each tree. So the analogy is, is so blatant, it's each one of us. Um, he works assiduously, um, he grieves lest he lose any one of these trees. So this is a 77 verse treatise of a vulnerable, loving God who is struggling to help um, the, the, the trees um, flourish and um, be, a, be in a position to be able to enjoy the abundant life. So I, I, think, I think that's really important. We are going to see a lot of Protestant rhetoric, 19th century Protestant rhetoric in the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine and Covenants because we're talking to um, the book is addressing a a, a Protestant or Puritan Protestant um, people who have um, who, who who have the religious sensibilities that are of the Protestant Reformation that are found in in the biblical text. So, you know, for example, um, Brigham Young says, you know, he joined primarily because he saw so much resonance of the biblical text within the Restoration scriptures. That being said. There is 21st century language there, and I think that word of woundedness really captures it, which is what you know Terrell and I are trying to you know, shift the rhetoric away from something that is more damning and um, that, that, that have become perjurative terms such as sin and punishment and turn them away to you know, change that to woundedness and healing. And Elder Renlund discussed this really beautifully, actually, in the 2016 General Conference, where he talked about um, Christ's concern as the Good Shepherd with a diseased flock, um, that he came to bind up their wounds and to help them recover from their maladies. So we're seeing this shift of rhetoric already within the church. So it sounds like you're saying Latter-day Saints themselves need to shed some thinking that they've had through the years and rediscover the God that's really taught in their own doctrine. Is that what you hope Mormons will take away from the book? Yes, yes, we really do. I mean, both Terrell and I feel that we are still encumbered by traditions of our fathers, and by the traditions of our fathers, we're talking about this very um, aggressive um, Protestant um, rhetoric and thought and theology that we are inherently sinful, that we can do nothing of ourselves, that whatever graces we, we receive is imputed to us. And essentially what, what Augustine did by saying that we are born uh, in sin, that we have no, ref, uh, no um, ability to do anything good of our own free will, um, Calvin, Luther, and Swingley took that and exacerbated that to such an extent that there is nothing about humankind of any redeeming character that is left, and that is that we find that completely antithetical to the theology and the gospel that Joseph Smith was articulating, which was much more optimistic and also much more universal. So he's moving away from this idea of Christianity and only Christians being saved to the fact that all mankind can be saved. And this is such a generous um, view uh, and take of both God and mankind and the ability, quite frankly, of mankind and God to work collaboratively together. We see that again in the baptismal covenant, so we make him as I-18, is that we are covenanting 
to um, to collaborate with Christ in the healing of each other, which is really extraordinarily beautiful. So it's much less about um, uh, a recu- recuperation or uh, a remedy for sin. There's a re- it's much more than a remission for of um, remission for sin than it is an invitation into a collaborative relationship with the Godhead in the healing of those around us, which we find much more. Um, positive and um, and it just generates this idea that I can do something and that uh, I, I I mean I, I see these in the terms you when God addresses himself as man of holiness my son is the son of man and we are mankind we are the godlike and I think Mormon theology is the first to really articulate the divinity that um, links us to the Godhead and therefore our ability to work much good in in the world around us. What's been the response so far uh, from from members? Uh, early response. Do you, do you think they're getting that? What have you heard? Well, we've got we, we we've had two kinds of responses so far. One is that we have found that that virtually no family in the church is untouched by disaffection by children who wander, by spouses who lose faith at testimony. And part of what we're trying to recapture here is Joseph's conviction, as he expressed it, that God will find a way to ferret out every single soul and bring them home. And so there has been a a joyful response to that message that Joseph Smith was so committed to and that was so consistently taught in the church until it began to fade in the 1950s and 60s. And second of all, the response has been just a, an appreciation and a recognition that we, that we haven't fully cast off these burdens of a Christian world that is too immersed in the language of, of sin, of fallenness, um, so it, it, it seems to speak a language of hopefulness to these people. Well, again, everyone, the book is called The Christ Who Heals. Terrell, Fiona Gibbons, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Peggy, as always, keep thank up you. the good work. Okay. And um, you can go to sltrib.com for more uh, religion stories and uh, Mormon uh, land podcasts. And see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.